review. Today's book is Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, a dialogue on hope, the philosophy of race, and the spiritual blues. The authors are Brad Elliott Stone, who's an associate professor and dean at Loyola Marymount University, and Jacob Goodson, who's an associate professor at Southwestern College. In this book, Brad and Jacob, you discuss Cornel West prophetic pragmatism in relation to other pragmatists like Richard Rorty and famous figures like W.E. Du Bois. How can we be honest about the legacy of racism in the U.S. and not lose hope? And questions about the roles philosophers should play in promoting progress and democratic values. So we're going to get to those topics, but before we do, I thought we could start out and have you say a little bit about how you encountered Cornel West's work and about the genesis of this co-authored book. In my life, West has always played an interesting role in my life. Um, I followed West for many, many years, not knowing that he was a philosopher. Uh, so Cornel West is a major voice in African-American life. And so, you know, I remember seeing Cornel West talking to Tavis Smiley on BET Tonight whenever they were talking about, you know, particular issues as it faced the African-American community. The first text of his I read was Race Matters that came out in 1993. I read it probably in 94, 95. I just started college and I just read it on my own. I saw it in a bookstore and read it. Um, his professional, you know, academic affiliation at the time was professor of African-American studies at Harvard. And so I only knew him as professor of African-American studies. And since Race Matters doesn't directly address any of the other philosophers, I just saw it as a black intellectual who I've seen on TV and always said things that made sense to me. And then it took, um, ironically, a course in postmodernism uh, at my alma mater, Georgetown College, uh, Norman Wiersba, who's now at Duke University, said to me, wow, you really love this Richard Rorty stuff, but there's some problems with Richard Rorty uh, and it can't square with certain other convictions you have. And he introduced me to Cornel West's book, Prophesy Deliverance, uh, which Wiersba had gotten hold of at Yale Divinity when he was a student at Yale Divinity and one of his professors was Cornel West. And so then I'm like, okay, he's a religion guy and African-American studies. <laughs> and then the following year, Georgetown College hired an American pragmatist, um, Roger Ward. And he was the one who connected all the dots that no, Cornel West is the greatest living pragmatist right now. And so that's how I started studying Cornel West as philosopher uh, with the American Evasion of Philosophy and then gradually reading all his other texts while I was in graduate school. I didn't have any opportunities to have a course on West, so a lot of it was self-taught, and there weren't a whole lot of secondary text at that time on West either. Yeah, that's a very different um, introduction to West than I had. So I I first encountered West as a philosopher, uh, as an undergraduate, um, looking, uh, I had a whole course on William James, looking for a secondary scholarship on James. Um, I quickly came across West American Evasion of Philosophy and really thought that his chapter on James in that book um, captured more of the the mood of James than other secondary sources tend to. Um, and so for me, it was, I want to write on James the way Cornell West writes on James. And I don't want to make James boring. 
I want to make James more exciting. And so as an undergraduate, that was, um, that was the distinction in my mind between James scholars was everyone wrote on James was tend to make James boring. And then this guy Cornell West made James even more exciting than James himself uh, was. And so, and then I ended up reading the whole book cover to cover, talked to my mentor um, about it, raised some questions about other philosophers that I, I hadn't encountered that Wes talks about. Um, that really is a wonderful introduction to American philosophy. And it also, as I say in the book, it also really puts West in that tradition in a very uh, peculiar way. And um, so when I teach that book now, I, I don't teach it only as a secondary source on American philosophers. I really push that this is this is West voice, right? Nar he's narrating a story and he's putting himself into that story. Um, and then I had the opportunity to meet Cornell West at American Academy of Religion meetings. Um, he would always hug me, <laughs> call me Brother Jacob. Um, I really encouraged the directions of my scholarship and um, said that he was a, a fan of Peter Oakes's work and Peter Oakes was my doctoral advisor at the time. Um, and so it was, you know, through his encouragement um, and through the friendship with, with uh, Dr. Stone that we, um, I just, I, I really felt the need to have a really good in-depth book on Cornell West pragmatism and um, we've, we've been talking about this project almost since our friendship started back in, uh, 2001. Oh, that's a great segue to the next thing I wanted to bring up, which was in your book, you explain and critically engage with Cornel West's discussion of oppression and the history of slavery in the United States, the legacy of slavery and how African-American culture and philosophy has responded to that legacy. And also to questions about what philosopher's role is in understanding oppression, the threat of nihilism in our modern society, and thinking about how to constructively deal with those threats. Well, one way to think about that would be to talk about, Wes has a wonderful essay that you really only find in the Cornell West Reader, because it was connected to a historical memorialization of a slave ship, the Henrietta Marie. And he, he talks about how the Black experience in the United States is born out of a contradiction, right? So you have this high-end enlightenment moralism that argues about freedom and human dignity. All the while, you have the nation being built and operated by a group of people who are considered human beings. And so the contradiction precedes the nihilism in a certain way. And since the United States has still, even in 2020, not come clean in any way, shape, form, or fashion about what really happened in this country, we have created a whole nihilistic view of America and being American that leads us to terrible consequences because we're unable to face the problems that are actually undergirding the history of our nation. Now, of course, West has a personal motive here. He's raised in a black conscious family and he himself uh, in that kind of first big generation of African-American studies scholars, 
he wants to figure out the possibilities of an African-American philosophy. That's the actual question he raises in his very first published essay in 1977, Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience, where he sees in pragmatism a way to historically and accurately address what happened in our country to face the problems that we have as a direct consequence in a certain way of this racist legacy of the United States. And that then plays out in so many forms. And so every book Cornel West writes in the preface, he lays out the newest formulation of this nihilism and oppression. And it all stems from this tension at the heart of American identity that still has never been thought through. Namely, what is, is, he would say, what are these black people? And the black people, as a result, have created the actual set of practices that make sense of this contradictory, absurd situation. And so pragmatism isn't so much to look, you know, the pursuit of practical solution, but rather the study of practices. And he's particularly interested in these practices created by African-Americans in response to this absurd, contradictory situation. Yeah, I, I think all that's right in terms of West as a pragmatist. Um, in writing this book, I, I've realized how important West Marxism was for your question as well, and particularly when it comes to how to deal with oppression in the U.S. and oppressed people. Um, and it seems like Wes pretty clearly sees in Marx in Marx's work um, three arguments or three claims that we can use right now in 21st century America to address oppression. The, the first one is, is that Marx teaches us how to maintain a preferential option for the humanity of those who are oppressed, particularly the humanity of the poor in Marx's case, but West feels a philosophical license to broaden that out for a preferential option for the humanity of, of all who are oppressed and to recover that humanity and their humanity. And then second, West has an interesting take on Marx's kind of revolutionary call for, uh, for West, Marx is not someone who wants or wishes for a violent revolution, but rather, uh, according to West, Marx's call for revolutionary activity involves his strong desire to bring dignity to all human beings. And this dignity has been stripped and taken away through capitalism, according to Marx. And West, you know, argues that that we have not corrected that part of capitalism and the oppression is, has become uh, even worse since Marx's time. And so for me, that makes that second point makes West's version of Marxism an uh, incredibly useful tool for uh, addressing oppression because he's not, West is not using the sort of the violent interpretation of Marx, right? He's, he's saying we have to recover the dignity of all human beings and that's the revolutionary. Um, it's more of revolutionary or radicalism in terms of its returning to the root. Right, let's return to the roots of, of human nature, of human dignity. And then the third point that West brings up is that 
Marx's understanding of alienation remains the most helpful aspect of Marxism for thinking and working through the moral problems that we face today. And so what you have here is, I think, you have West providing Marxism as a, as a tool to correct and face the problems of the oppressed people. Uh, this is not necessarily a political program in the way that um, Soviet communism uses Marxism, but rather it's a, it's, it, it is strictly a tool to actually respond to the catastrophes that are being experienced by so many people in the United States. That's interesting. So it sounds like West has an anti-utopian aspect of his philosophy, and he wants to focus more on the diagnosis of problems we face. On the other hand, you emphasize in the book that West doesn't want to draw a despairing or pessimistic lesson from that. So maybe could you say more about how does West handle that idea of rejecting certain types of ideal theory or utopianism but not lapsing into pessimism as an approach. Yeah, well, Wes's phrase that he uses a lot is hope on a tightrope, which gets us over these utopian visions. In fact, Cornell West's dissertation in 1980, uh, which would later be published in 1991 as The Ethical Dimensions of Marxist Thought, actually argues that a lot of the Marxist theories coming out in social theory were too utopian, too rationalist. Um, he wants instead a living, breathing historicism. So when we think about Marxism, we should actually focus mostly on his historicism, on his idea of materialism, and less on, dare we say, the idealism that gets born out of readers of Marx. So when we talk about race in America, we cannot separate that from the question of economics. Slavery was an economic system. It wasn't just people deciding, oh, I want to own black people. The idea of black people as property already entails a certain economic view. It also, when you look at the actual role of slavery in the creation of the 19th century American economy, so the rising of America as a world power, you know, there's a wonderful book on this that half has not been sold. I can't remember the author's first name, but his last name is Baptist. And since Jacob and I both grew up Baptist, I always remember his last name being Baptist. Um, a large chunk of the American economy, even in the North, was connected to slavery. So the entire American economic story is actually tied to the slave story. And that's part of the story we don't want to talk about. So we need to be Marxists insofar as we can tell the right economic story. So that when we talk about white supremacy ideology, we actually see certain economic underpinnings, right? Which is what Marx shows us. So instead of Marx's pure economic, you know, kind of casting of society in America, this becomes the racial layer itself. And so in that regard, Corner West isn't unique in African-American thought. Most African-American thinkers uh, have to go through Marxism because there's a direct connection between American capitalism and the experiences of black people in America. And so in that part, you know, he's not that unique. What he was trying to do in his dissertation, however, is save Marx in a certain way from a particular ideological reading. I shouldn't say ideological, a particular idealistic reading. 
And so when we're talking about the actual experiences of black people, and this is a theme that always undergirds all my work on Cornell West, at least, when we're talking about the undergirding of the actual experiences of black people in America, we cannot ignore these economic systems that need black labor, but fail to give black people dignity. Yeah, and in that in that chapter, in my chapter on Marxism in West, I I make the bold claim that West version of Marxism is the most relevant and useful for 21st century America. And what I mean by that, mostly to echo um, Dr. Stone, is that it is a non-idealistic, non-utopian um, Marxism. He's a it's a it's more of a much more on the ground. Um, focusing on local practices. Um, and then the second part is that it's it, somewhat ironically, it's a, it's a nonviolent Marxism. It's, it's uh, for West, we're not going to return to the dignity of all human beings um, through some um, violent mechanism or violent revolution. Um, the, the only thing I would add to what Dr. Stone said is in writing that chapter, even though I, ended up not including it, um, I came across um, a large amount of writings by Karl Marx on the American Civil War, which I did not know existed. And so if, if, uh, if your listeners wanted to actually see what Marx himself had to say about American slavery, those have now all been compiled into a, a single book. Um, and I, I hope to write on that in the future. It, it didn't quite make it into this book because um, it, it was going to take us more on a tangent. And um, at the point of writing that chapter, we, we, we were under a pretty strict deadline from <laughs> Roman Littlefield. So um, as the two of you know, that's uh, a lot of things don't make it into books because of publishers' deadlines. <laughs> well, that's all too true, Jacob. Um, I wanted to pivot at this point to from West diagnosis of the problems we face and uh, talk a little bit more about the kinds of civic virtues and democratic virtues that he wants philosophers to elucidate. And he thinks philosophers and others can work together to try to promote and inculcate in citizens and in ourselves. So I thought maybe I'd invite you to say a little bit about that and how it relates to his idea of maintaining hope and having some sort of positive way of trying to achieve progress. Well, I mean, one way to approach this would be to say that Cornell West is not actually prescribing much for ordinary people. He's actually starting with the actions of ordinary people. And that's a key to, at least in my chapter, about why we should consider West a pragmatist. Uh, I highlight, when you look at 400 years of African-American existence, Often it is taught as if black people did nothing but moan under the, the weight of oppression. Black people created things and came up with their own practices in order to respond to white supremacy in the United States. And if we realize the intelligence of those activities, then anybody could be freed from oppression. You know, when I teach African-American studies, I always end the semester by pointing out that, gee, you know, we just covered 400 years of what black people did in response. And black people overall turned out 
okay, question mark? What more could they have accomplished if they hadn't been resisted at every conceivable moment of American history? That's the story Cornel West is trying to tell us. So after 9-11, and this is what influenced his book, uh, Democracy Matters, he found it interesting that a country couldn't sing the blues. Black people know what it's like to die for no real reason. And as Cornel West himself says, after 9-11, the entirety of the United States becomes niggerized. And by that term, all he means is to be completely open and vulnerable to unpredictable violence and death. But interestingly, the United States did not respond the way Black people already knew how to respond in situations like that. And so we again went back to our militaristic bullying in countries that we now know actually had nothing to do with 9-11. And we stay connected to the governments that were connected to 9-11. So those kinds of practices already display the democratic virtues that Cornell West is advocating for. So things like experimentalism, creativity, um, community building, and the arts that bring people together to find the, the, the smallest possibilities of joy and somebodiness that we all have to have if we're going to have a vibrant democracy. Now, this discussion of democracy, of course, is influenced by his dissertation director, Sheldon Wolin, and the idea of a fugitive democracy. So democracy isn't the default setting in the United States. People have to advocate democratically for things because their default setting is actually oppression. The, um, the virtue that I focus on is, is hope, a chapter trying to construct what Wes thinks of as hope and what hope looks like. Um, and you mentioned Du Bois earlier. Um, it turns out that one of one of West's critiques of Du Bois is that he thinks Du Bois turned hope into a kind of idealistic optimism. Um, and so he wants to separate himself from Du Bois's version of hope as a democratic virtue and really find a, a golden mean um, in the Aristotelian sense between um, Du Bois's uh, optimism or idealism and then on the other extreme um, West gives a really close reading of Toni Morrison's Beloved and says that uh, that a real temptation um, and something that we all should understand especially those of us who are parents right that one thing racism and white supremacy does is it turns us to despair and that the character, uh, Toni Morrison's character, you know, kills her own children because it would, it's better to be dead than to be a slave. Now, Wes takes that argument very seriously. And because he takes it so seriously, um, he, he doesn't dismiss it, but he wants to think about what it means for hope to be a golden mean between uh, Toni Morrison's beloved and the despair depicted there. And then Du Bois's opposite extreme of this kind of idealism and optimism that uh, Du Bois does call hope, but Wes thinks that that's a, a, a kind of fake hope or artificial hope. And so, you know, hope as a democratic virtue in a country that's 
built on and based upon white supremacy is tricky and it's it's difficult to articulate and to think of the object of what we are hopeful for and i think i found west to be um kind of the brutal honesty <laughs> that he writes about hope uh, especially in relation to 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 seth and, and tony morrison's beloved um i found that to be a realistic hope um, and in fact what dr stone called hope on a tightrope right that you could you could fall off any minute and that doesn't make you less virtuous. It, it means that the tragedy of the world is, um, is just so deep and so ingrained. Right. So to follow up on Dr. Goodson there, you know, one of the adjectives that West often uses in front of the word hope is tragic comic, right? So on the one hand, tragic, the situation of black people in America is tragic as he comments, right? Africa didn't have a concept of tragedy, right? That is unique, dare we say, to the African-American experience forged in the bellies of slave ships, brought to life on plantations. And in that tragedy, however, you get something, for example, like blues music, which gives us an opportunity to laugh about how bad things are. And so it's not just tragedy. It's not, you know, the Tony Morrison gloom doom. It is comic. And you hear this, you know, if you listen to black comedians where the comedy of black life is not ignorant of the difficulties black people face. It's a way of laughing at how absurd, to go back to that thing, how absurd this situation actually is. And therefore, when we talk about hope, it can't be, as West says, it can't be pie in the sky thinking. It has to be, how do we deal with hell on earth? And I have a footnote in one of my chapters where I point out, you know, there's that old black spiritual called by and by. You know, I know my suit is going to fit me well because I tried it on at the gates of hell. And so black people are going to heaven and they're going to heaven because they've already gone to hell. And you could look into a bunch of Afrofuturism and black speculativism, and you'll see those motifs over and over again, that black people have already died in a certain way. Um, and so you can see this in zombie culture coming out of Haiti. You can see this in um, the ways in which America, black Americans raise up black people murdered at the hands of the police into a quasi-sainthood. Um, this way of overcoming the reality of death in a nation, as James Baldwin says, you know, has literally set black people in it to die. Or you see this in uh, Killian Mbembe's idea of necropolitics. You see it in uh, Leonard Harris's conception of necro being, that the black relationship to the world is death. And what we see in African-American culture is a set of practices that actually bring black people to life. Mostly black church practices, but also art practices and democratic participation. That's fascinating. And it suggests to me there's a sort of third narrative about the United States that you can tell. One is familiar sort of upbeat, optimistic story about America as the land of free and opportunity. And then there's another counter narrative 
that certainly some conservative commentators have worried about being pushed by the critical race movement, which would tell us negative story about the United States being inherently based on slavery, and maybe that's inescapable. Sounds to me like West and you together in your book are talking about a third narrative where by focusing on the sufferings and oppression connected to slavery, but the way that's the African-American community and culture have responded to that and tried to make sense of that and, and, and live well in the face of that, it could be an upbeat, inspiring, uh, but challenging story, but that would still focus on slavery. So I wonder what you think about that as a, is that right that this sort of third narrative is suggested there in response to a familiar two options we sometimes are faced with in public culture today? Yeah, I mean, I going back to the conservative ideals, um, one ideal has to be the obligation to, to tell the truth. <laughs> and if we're going to be truth tellers, you can't. There's, it's logically impossible to tell a story of the U.S. without, without the story of slavery, of Jim Crow, of white supremacy. Um, but of course, we we also have to be hopeful. I think that, I think saying that we simply tell the truth um, without the hopefulness can lead to its own form of nihilism. Um, and so there's no way to avoid telling the truth. I don't, I, I, I really truly am baffled by what's coming out of Republicans um, mouths about how we teach American history right now. It's, it's simply, um, you know, it's, it's the worst parts of Plato's noble lies, I think of, of what they're trying to um, suggest and enforce. Um, when I teach political science, uh, to, um, group of mostly Midwesterners, um, at Southwestern college, you know, I, when we address this issue, I, I do address it from the angle of truth and, you know, is it important that we teach our children the truth about Roman history, the truth about medieval history, the truth about serfdom, the truth about, uh, the way Jews were treated in Europe, the truth about um, you know, those Africans shipping Africans to England and the United States. And, you know, they, they of course always agree to that. Yes, yes, yes. We have to tell the truth about all that. And then I say, what is, explain the current movement to me where we're not allowed to talk about this. What, how, how is that upholding a conservative ideal or conservative value? And, you know, there's, there's simply no rational answer to that question. And so um, when I when I do teach on that, I talk about the telling the truth matters, but also within higher education, cultivating hopefulness matters. Um, and for me, uh, intellectual hope is being able to tell the truth um, as fully as as we know it um, and to risk the despair about that. Uh, but I call it intellectual hope because I think we need to create or cultivate some mechanisms in our minds where we're able to hold those seeming contradictions together, that we can be truthful about our past and hopeful about our future. Yeah, I would second Dr. Goodson's comments there. I'd like to, of course, put on the record, as it were, that Black people in America have always had to be truthful about that past. So it's only a white luxury 
to deny this past. Uh, for black people, this is the story. So you hear black children go to school and there was a famous case several years ago in Texas where a textbook, uh, you know, an actual history textbook said that Africans had come to the new world to find work. Now you gotta ask, who was that for? Who did that benefit? What ideology, you know, now literally ideology, right? Epistemic illusion and delusion is that for? Not for black children. Black children know that their great, great grandparents were slaves, right? But what's missing is since we still live in a country that doesn't want to look at what black people have done, what they wrote, what they created, their practices, and then say, let's use those, because although black people created them, it's not as if black people want you know to hoard it to themselves. These are gifts to the world. The idea becomes, let's not talk about it, because in the white imagination, the only thing that could then be true of black people is absolute misery, absolute despondency. But if you want to talk about hope, you know, you're worried about patriotism. Black people love America. Black people fought in the wars for America. Even when they were not receiving the freedoms they were due in their own country, went to war to liberate other countries, to come back to America, to not receive their GI benefits, right? Only white people were given the GI benefits benefits. Um, black people have been more than hopeful, as Cornel West himself points out. America doesn't have an IRA. There is no Al-Qaeda. There's no ETA. Other countries that were highly oppressive of a particular group, those groups formed resistance armies. Black people have not. You hear politicians all the time. Oh, the black agenda or the gay agenda, things like that. If only there were such agendas, but there aren't. There is no black agenda. How many ways are there to be black in America? Henry Louis Gates' famous question. Well, given the recent census, about 14.1 million ways. So there is no black agenda to be worried about here, right? There's the truth of the matter that black people know and black people built their culture around. And so if anyone wants to even remotely begin to understand black people, and of course we could bring up whether people are actually interested in that or not, we have to start telling the truth about what happened on these shores. And it will even help white people understand how they became white. Not everyone in America became white, right? Whiteness grows over time. It's still evolving. And so we can't talk about race because we won't talk about what happened here. And so even white people are trapped, as Baldwin says, in a history that they do not know. And so this actually affects all of us. But black people did create systems of hope. And so if we're going to study what happened to black people, we also have to study how black people responded. And that's one of the key parts of prophetic pragmatism. Cornel West is not interested in merely saying that America was racist. He wants to say that black people created something out of that situation. And what they created is a beautiful thing. 
that's interesting. I thought maybe you could now draw that out a bit more and talk about in the book, you contrast West's vision and you talk about how West contrasts his vision with other African-American thinkers. For example, W.E. Du Bois, influenced by Herder and his education in German philosophy, seemed to favor an idea where there's a talented 10th or a, a, a sort of high culture group of African-Americans who could represent African-American experience through high culture to a broader public, but also to the African-American community. So West's vision contrasts with that in certain ways. So I thought maybe could you speak to that a bit now or contrast West's vision with some other creative and interesting thinkers in the African-American philosophic tradition, Martin Luther King or James Baldwin? I have a very brief answer to that. I mean, I think you brought up the German idealist tradition that had formed Du Bois. In some ways, the, the difference between the two of them, Du Bois and West, is is the difference between German philosophy and American philosophy, right? The, um, from Emerson to William James to John Dewey, the critique of elitism and the critique of these levels of culture was it was at the heart of American philosophy. Um, so whether or not it's, it's Emerson's focus on the common man or James and Dewey trying to think of, um, you know, what's already happening on the ground as the, the defining features of culture, I think West certainly inherits that from, um, from Emerson and the American pragmatist. And his, um, you know, his conversation with Du Bois on this is a conversation that you can see um, although it might have different terms, uh, but that you can see, you know, when Dewey critiques Hegel, um, when James critiques Kant, um, it's simply, uh, you know, the German, at least in the philosophical tradition, have a tendency to defend what Americans would call elitism. And part of the heart of American pragmatism is to really overcome, um, overcome that kind of defense and to uh, from a democratic perspective to see all of us as equal and not to make a caste system based on high or low culture. It's also important to highlight that this notion that the boys gains is kind of itself ironic. Why is the boys in Germany? And the answer is because no American university would accept him because he was black. And he goes to Germany, like Anna Julia Cooper, who went to University of Paris. So, you know, Anna Julia Cooper, the first black woman in America to have a doctorate degree. The boys, the first black man. Anna Julia Cooper has to leave America to get a doctorate degree from the Sorbonne, right, which every famous French thinker has graduated from, and then comes back to America and you can't get a job. Du uh, Bois does the same. He goes to Germany, has all these German ideas, and that he then tries to implement in America, which already is going to have certain problems from an American philosophical point of view, right? There's an important reason West starts American Invasion of Philosophy with Emerson. Emerson, you know, the, the first proto-pragmatist, the first American philosopher, per se, uh, of pure American style. And what is Emerson's main concern? That Americans keep looking to Europe. And that's our problem. And it's still our problem today. So you have people on the left looking at Europe to try to model governments and economic systems off of Europe. You have people on the right looking at Europe and weirdly at like medieval Europe. 
uh, to try to come up with a kind of pure whiteness that never existed even in Europe during that period. So when we look at the boys, the boys comes with an idea of high culture that can rival white high culture. That part will find noble, but it causes the boys to hold certain very conflicting beliefs. When you read Du Bois past, you know, the few pages that most people read of Du Bois, you find a weird, dare we say, self-hatred of blackness. Because the ordinary black person, the ordinary American black, will never be high cultured. But to be fair, most Americans will never be high cultured in this regard. And for all the expression of hope, which indeed was optimistic, Du Bois is the one who loses hope in the end. Du Bois leaves America and dies in Ghana to never return to America, right? So the problem with optimism as your basis of hope is once you have zero reason to remain optimistic, there is no hope underneath it. And so Du Bois actually gives up on America. West embraces America. If the things that we claim are going to happen in this Emersonian romantic self-creation idea, only in America can that happen. And so West is more willing to appreciate the practices of ordinary, dare we say, Southern rural Black people, which Du Bois had zero appreciation for. When you read Souls of Black Folk, it's very clear. He doesn't know what to do when he goes to the South. He didn't grow up in the South. So he finds a lot of those prophetic practices that West writes about appalling to him. He doesn't understand charismatic worship. He doesn't understand folk culture. He doesn't understand uh, the blues. You know, so the only music that he thinks is great is like spirituals because at least they have theological content. But he doesn't even seem to realize that those spirituals come from the field songs of slaves. And so there's a certain way in which Du Bois actually never touches the African-American experience. But West embraces the everyday Black practices. We see this in his music album, right, where we're going to actually highlight field songs and blues music, um, funk music, all these kinds of American pop culture production because it's not merely entertainment. Underneath all that music is a critique of the United States, critique of white supremacy, critique of certain capitalist systems. And so we have to actually look at those. And Du Bois never does. Thanks. I wanna now turn to a slightly different topic, which comes up in the exchange you discuss between Cornell West and his advisor, Richard Rorty. Those two discussed and to some degree disagreed about the role that academic philosophers and philosophers in general can play in American life and the aspirations philosophers should have for influencing public culture and public narratives and how they play a role by educating students in dealing with social change or furthering social change. So I thought that could be a good next topic to discuss your, your views on that and West's views and maybe bring in some of the disagreement with between West and Rorty. Well, I think a key thing, of course, is 
to realize historically the decline of philosophy in American public life. So John Dewey was probably the last philosopher, qua philosopher, to actually be present in American discourse. So John Dewey actually represented the United States at the Nuremberg Trials, for example. Um, France sent Henri Bergson, you know, it's, you know, and of course in other countries, you still have this kind of philosophical culture in France and Spain, you still actually have, you know, philosophers on the evening news. America replaced that with punditry. But one of the key books on this, John McCumber wrote a great book called Time in a Ditch about how McCarthyism really impacted what the academy could be in America. And so West is hoping for an alternative, namely a philosopher that comes from the grassroot level, who's explaining, you know, to use Dewey's famous phrase, make practices intelligible, who can be the intellectual who brokers between the academy and the people. Richard Rorty gives up on that idea. Now, to be fair, Richard Rorty also gave up on philosophy as a profession. Right. He literally writes Philosophy Mirror of Nature. When he taught that at Princeton, Cornell West was one of the students. So Cornell West read that first draft of Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature. So much so that West writes his 1977 article and basically spoils the book for you because he already says, Oh, Richard Rorty has this wonderful idea. And right there in 1977, West tells you what you're going to find in American uh, in a Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature. They come out two years later. It's kind of funny. But for West, he doesn't see Rorty's book as the end of the philosophical story in America, but rather the reinvigoration of it. And so out of all the philosophers who interacted with Richard Rorty in the late 70s, Cornel West is probably the one who actually ran with it and decided to actually do edifying philosophy instead of what uh, Rorty calls systematic philosophy. Uh, America's insistence in philosophy to only look at our arguments and you know kind of analyze them is a dead enterprise. Uh, that's what Rorty's view was. But West was willing to say, no, Rorty gives us the historicism necessary. He actually called philosophy of nature music to my ears and then gives us the temper we need, critical temper, to then get out there and be active. Rorty didn't grow up in those kinds of settings, although his parents were active uh, communists, um, but Rorty never saw himself getting out there and, dare I say, get his hands dirty, right? For him, he's interested in this big distinction between my private snobbish desires and like the public good, West doesn't hold that distinction. So I'd say the biggest difference between West and Rorty is that West doesn't hold the public-private distinction that uh, Rorty does. So for black people who don't get the, pr the privilege, frankly, of a public-private distinction, uh, African-American philosophy grounded in Rorty's historicism gives us a way to fight for freedom that's not idealistic. And that's what West found attractive. Now, Rorty didn't buy any of this. There's that famous review uh, called The Poet, The Professor and the Prophet. And Rorty just thinks it's too late for academics to really 
impact the political world. And we see this in the rest of Rorty's life. He had things to say that could have been politically interesting, but he wasn't very interested in living a political life. And West is. I completely agree with all that. The only thing I would add is to have a kind of testimony of how West has shaped me as a professor in the classroom teaching philosophy. One, one thing that I try to model myself after West is how he makes um, Socrates and Socratic, Socratic questioning um, part of the pedagogical task for philosophers in the late 20th and, and 21st centuries. Um, West writes at one point, Socratic questioning requires a relentless self-examination and critique of institutions and of authority motivated by an endless quest for intellectual integrity and moral consistency. Um, I, that, that sentence really um, guides me in how I teach, and I, I try to offer uh, helpful and insightful criticisms of different institutions um, that I know that my students will have to deal with in the future. Um, I think one thing I raise up, um, West has always been intellectually and morally, and dare I say prophetically critical of everyone who's been president of the United States in West's lifetime. And he does not make exceptions for um, those who are democratic, even though West is, is a Democrat. Um, he thinks that part of his task as philosopher is to play the Socratic role of questioning those in power and to keep them on their heels. Um, during the Obama presidency, you know, this type of Socratic role um, had some real cost for West in his personal life. He, he had friends writing op-eds against him and publicly ending their friendship. Um, and for me, that, that takes so much intellectual courage. Um, and I'm, uh, even though I, I do not have the political experience or expertise that West has, I do think that it's an important part of the philosophy education in the 21st century is, is to model to our students what it might mean to critique those in power and to raise questions connecting, connecting those tr critiques to what might be some of the moral assumptions that our students bring with them to the classroom. And, and to say that um, one thing I try to emphasize is follow your moral assumptions. Don't be duped by those in power to give up what you consider to be moral. Um, and I, I, I say that because of, of being inspired by West and, and trying to play that Socratic role um, as, as part of being a professor in, in higher education. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun, guys. One last question I thought I'd pose would be, if someone's interested in reading Cornell West and learning more about his work, where would you start out? In particular, some people on the rest of the podcast may be grad students in philosophy or theology or professors. So I thought for that group or a larger audience, where would you suggest that people turn to take a look and dig in? My biggest advice is to start with the 1977 essay. Uh, it was published in the Philosophical Forum. It's called um, Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience. We see in one of the projects I'm now working on, that's kind of the kernel of the whole book. How do you unfold that essay? Um, a lot of themes are already there developed. West is in grad school at the time. He's like 22 years old. 
and he lays out what he really thinks one philosophically has to do to correctly address African-American life philosophically. So I always highlight that essay along with like Emerson's American scholar, you know, if you really want to understand. Those who have done some American philosophy, of course, the American invasion of philosophy, because it'd be just the easiest to read. And then for a general reader, I would say the Cornell West reader, because it gives you a good sampling of themes and it's sorted by topic. So you can kind of see West's political stuff, his pragmatism stuff, his writings on race, you know, more deliberately sorted in a particular order. But that's usually my recommendations when people ask me where to start. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I, my recommendation was going to say, um, was going to be the basic press put out the Cornell West reader. And it's extremely helpful for the categorizations. Um, I enjoy teaching American Invasion of Philosophy. Um, I, again, I, I think that's really West putting himself into the story of American philosophy. But my experiences in terms of teaching West to undergraduates, that you get a lot more traction if you teach race matters and democracy matters. Um, you know, undergraduates are not usually um, interested in the integral, integral details and nuances of American philosophical positions, but they do care about race and racism, and they do care about what democracy ought to look like and what, what it can look like and what it has looked like. And so uh, I've been trying to force myself pedagogically to, to use those two texts more than uh, his American Evasion and his uh, um, the, the book on Marx, um, uh, Ethical Dimensions of Marxist, uh, Marxist Thought. So, but the, the reader um, is very good. It, it, did, it, it, did, it has the, the right selections in it in terms of um, really getting an in-depth understanding of what West is all about. All right. Well, Dr. Stone, Dr. Goodson, thanks so much for coming on to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you.